2: Hello, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. As the coronavirus crisis continues to escalate, How To Academy is tapering off its programme of live talks in central London. But we promise this podcast will be here to keep you company in the long and anxiety-inducing months ahead. Whether you're self-isolating... Working from home, quarantined, or just trying to go about business as usual, we've got the content to keep your brain stimulated. You'll meet philosophers, psychologists, business leaders, and even world record-breaking polar explorers who know a thing or two about the stresses of solitude. Best of all, most of our episodes are evergreen, meaning they don't quickly date and you can find the whole archive of past podcasts wherever you're listening to this one. Last month, the award-winning Turkish novelist and activist Elif Shafak sat down with our presenter, Matthew Stadlin, to share her insights into populism and the future of democracy. Elif is the most widely read female author in Turkey, and a public intellectual of distinction, who's taught at universities including Oxford, Michigan and Arizona, She's also a regular contributor to the world's most influential newspapers and a nominee for many of literature's most significant prizes, including The Orange, Baileys and Ondaatje. Here's what she had to say about the world in 2020. Well, very
0: good to see you sitting here in my kitchen. We're talking in early to mid-February 2020. Britain has just officially left the European Union. Boris Johnson is in charge. Donald Trump is in charge in America, and I think likely to win a second term. Erdogan, of course, is still in control in Turkey. How do you see the world now?
1: Depressing, isn't it? Um, I think we have entered the age of pessimism in a way. There's a lot of anxiety, and it's not only about politics. Just putting that aside for a moment, I think people have every right to be anxious about the climate, um, about the future of their children. So there's a lot of political anxiety, but also cultural anxiety, environmental anxiety, social anxiety that I'm also observing. And I think it's very important to understand the role of emotions in today's politics.
0: It seems to me that identity has become a very important thing in politics again, if it ever went away.
1: Exactly, if it ever went away. uh, Identity I think is the key word and that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm worried about how we are polarised because it's more than a political polarisation that we're talking about, it's much more than which party you're voting for, that's normal, that's just the state of democracy and actually it's a good thing that kind of difference. But what we're experiencing is very different. It's almost like these stacked up identities vertically without overlapping. And that is not healthy for any society. I also know, coming from a country like Turkey, when societies are bitterly polarised, divided into tribes almost that do not overlap, I think the only people who benefit from that situation are the demagogues. This is their climate. So it worries me, and I and I think about how... How can we move beyond our own echo chambers? How can we find a common language? Is it possible to bridge these divides? I think those are going to be the most challenging questions ahead of us.
0: And you think it's helpful, I think, to see the world in terms of circles?
1: I like the circle as a metaphor, although it could... I mean, I gave a TED talk years ago in which I used maybe circles as a symbol um, because... It could also have a negative impact in the sense that if all your friends think like you, vote like you, speak like you, um, like us, then it means we're just surrounded by our own mirror image. And the only voices that we hear are the echoes of our own voice. And that's a very narcissistic existence. So all I'm trying to say is that if the circle is, is like a mental ghetto or a cultural ghetto, based on sameness, where everybody's alike, where we are under the illusion that sameness is going to bring us safety. I don't think that's a very healthy um, way of living. But if we can use circle in a much more egalitarian way, in a, as a much more positive symbol, uh, I like it a lot in the sense that in a circle, there are no hierarchies. Every place is at equal distance from the center. It's not like a triangle. Um, So it's it's more embracing, it's more inviting, more egalitarian. So in that sense, I like to use the circle as a metaphor.
0: Echo chambers, of course, can be enhanced by the online world. You're someone who uses social media, you have a huge number of Twitter followers Mm -hmm. and a growing number as well of Instagram followers whereas the internet was once perhaps seen either as neutral or as a positive and as a democratizing force. I think now we've come to realize that it has many pitfalls.
1: Absolutely. And it wasn't that long ago when there was so much optimism, actually, about the digital technologies. You will remember um, early 2000s, I think it was a time of extreme optimism. And understandably, to a certain extent, because the Berlin Wall had come down, the Soviet Union was no more. So it looks like the triumph of liberal democracy. But I think that made many people arrogant in a way because people thought well from now on history could only go in one direction just forward progressive so every day would be more better and better you know more developed and people also thought digital technologies were going to be a big part of that so much so that nationalism was going to wither away religion was going to lose its grip and in a way we were all going to become one big global village because of that kind of optimism you might remember Uh, Around the time of Arab Spring, a young Egyptian couple, they named their newborn baby daughter Facebook. And I remember a couple of months later, a family in Israel, they named their third child Like again um, because it was a time of Facebook and optimism. So I think about those kids a lot today. Uh, Facebook in Egypt and like in Israel, what's their life like? Because now we know better the dark side of digital technologies and we should be aware of that. And we should understand that in a way the social media is a bit like the moon. I am not underestimating its bright side in the sense that it is, yes, more egalitarian. It does connect us. It is important, particularly in countries where we have seen the media, diversity and freedoms completely crushed, such as Turkey. I think social media is important. Also, as a woman, I care about social media because I've seen in many patriarchal places, women are are not equally present in the public space, but within the digital space, they find another zone of existence for themselves and minorities as well. So all of that is very positive. But we cannot be ignorant ...or negligent about the dark side of social media. Tech companies cannot have this much power. And I think we need to urgently address this... ...because it is much more than giving an equal voice to everyone. It doesn't work like that. What it made possible is for more extreme views come into the mainstream through algorithms and there's a lot we need to address, talk about and there cannot be a power monopoly in this space
0: because of course when you open the world up you're not just opening the world up to good and to positive ideas and to ideas of equality you're opening it up to poison as well that can spread like a virus on Twitter and elsewhere and you've spoken before now about the way in which strong men around the world are encouraging each other in the end obviously strong men tend to fight so they might see each other as helpful in the short term but ultimately it can lead to war
1: that is true because that kind of politics always necessitates an other you know a division between us and them And therefore, the other constantly changes. One day it could be an ethnic minority, it could be a sexual minority. Another day it will be someone else. But there has to be a duality for that kind of populist narrative to flourish. And that's one thing that we need to be very much aware of, that kind of populist nationalism, which gradually, but sometimes much more quickly, paves the way for populist authoritarianism, I think what countries like Turkey have shown us is that democracy is much more than the ballot box. Let us not forget that Turkey has regular elections, right? And elections are incredibly important. I respect it enormously. But all I'm saying is, in itself, the ballot box is not enough to sustain a democracy. So Turkey has a ballot box. It is not a democracy. Russia has a ballot box. It is not a democracy. Because in addition to elections you also need rule of law, freedom of speech, checks and balances, definitely women's rights, minority rights, a free, diverse press, media, and also independent academia. You know, with all those components, a democracy can survive. And I think what those so-called strong men cannot tolerate is that kind of pluralism.
0: As someone coming from Turkey, fully aware of the dangers of someone like Erdogan. I just wonder, without comparing, I nonetheless wonder how fragile you think British democracy, Western democracy can be. How fragile is it?
1: Yes, I'm also careful with these comparisons because obviously the case of Turkey is very different. But at the same time, I'm someone who has observed the whole Brexit saga with a heavy heart, you know, and, and at the same time because I have to add all these into the picture I'm a storyteller and I think as a writer in a way my primary job is to try to understand where people are coming from. So I might be critical of the, the Brexit process and the way it was carried out but that doesn't give me the right to exclude people who have voted for Brexit. you know I think it's incredibly important that I that I understand uh, and this is a big big challenge for all of us. To me, one thing is very clear. Had I been born in a different part of this country, I might have voted for Brexit. So clearly I'm a Remainer, but I need to understand what are the psychological, social, political, economic circumstances that lead us to think in different ways. So I try to approach politics in a much more nuanced way. But what does worry me about the UK today, um, coming back to your question, is when I see tabloids Publishing pictures of judges and writing enemies of the people underneath. That kind of language is, is very dangerous, toxic, and it's something we've seen in other countries. We might disagree. But we cannot call people who disagree with us enemies of the people. When female opposition MPs are receiving rape threats or death threats, that is something that worries me. So we might think differently, we might vote differently, but I think we should all be very aware of the importance of fundamental democratic institutions and political norms because without those, democracy cannot survive.
0: Brexit has been a fault line This has thrown up all sorts of questions and it has led people on both sides to question how well British democracy functions. I suppose what I want to try to understand is how dangerous do you think it is for us to be complacent in this country about our democracy? How inviolable really is it?
1: Yes, and I think it's a very important question because, again, going back to the optimism of early 2000s, I remember political scientists Writing articles or or giving statements saying, from now on, we wouldn't see the rise of toxic nationalism in especially some parts of Europe. You know, they were like solid lands, right? For instance, Germany was thought to be one solid country. Why? Because after having experienced the horrors, the atrocities of Nazi ideology, of racism, Germany will never see the rise of any kind of nationalism was the assumption not that long ago. Spain was thought And to now be. we see
0: the rise of AFD.
1: We see it. And for the first time since the Second World War, they're in the parliament and they're gaining strength. Uh, and, and it is very worrisome. Spain was another prediction because, again, political scientists or many experts thought after having experienced Franco regime because the Spanish people embrace pluralistic democracy so wholeheartedly, we will never see it there. But now we have the Vox movement in Andalusia, particularly in the South, but beyond that as well, that talks about the good old days of Franco and they're using a very sexist language particularly against the achievements of feminist movement. Now, another prediction was about Sweden, interestingly, because Sweden has always been the bastion of welfare, state, social democracy, gender equality. I mean, in so many ways, an amazing system. And yet right now we have a very dangerous far-right rhetoric Um, flourishing in Sweden and the fourth assumption was about the UK because it's a country with a very long history of liberal democracy it's so well established that it doesn't even need a written constitution it has its checks and balances all of which is true but all I'm saying is that doesn't mean it can never happen here so we shouldn't be complacent I don't think we should ever be arrogant and we should understand that we have entered an age in which Everything is liquid, you know, everything is constantly evolving. And democracy is much more fragile than we initially assumed. So we all, as citizens, need to put effort in order to keep it going.
0: Angela Merkel, we mentioned Germany, her political career undoubtedly suffered as a result of her generosity, welcoming so many migrants or refugees or both into her country. And I wonder how, moving forward, given refugees will always be here and perhaps in ever increasing numbers, particularly with the threat of climate change. I wonder how moving forward, we manage that and and we are able to both protect and welcome at the same time.
1: Yes, and I think this is the biggest question. Um, of of this decade because people usually think about Syria when we talk about refugees but it's much more than that And, and and I think you're very right to mention climate refugees in 2050, not that far away there will be millions and millions of people displaced because of climate change it is happening in front of our eyes and I think one of the biggest paradoxes that we experience today is at a time when we see Lots of global challenges, whether it's climate or terrorism or the dangers, the dark side of digital technologies or, or financial um, maybe instabilities, you know, because we're all interconnected. At the time when all of this is on the horizon, we are trying to solve global problems with the forces of nationalism. You cannot solve global challenges with nationalism or tribalism or isolationism this is a time when as world citizens we need to cooperate more we need to coordinate more you know what's happening in australia a fire affects the lives of people elsewhere Uh, a disease that's taking place in china affects the lives of people elsewhere we're all interconnected whether we like it or not so i think as we think about our nation states our, our continents which is very human which is very understandable we also need to have a global perspective and this is why i i want to question this duality that's being imposed on us particularly by populists they make it sound as if you can't be a patriot and a global citizen at the same time why can't we be both i think it's very beautiful that people feel attached an emotional attachment to their lands, to the culture of their ancestors and care about their region, their city, their country primarily. This is normal, but it shouldn't end there. You can also be many other things at the same time. You can have multiple belongings. That's why I'm very critical of identity politics. If I may add this, when I look at myself, of course I'm an Istanbulite, but I'm attached to the Balkans. I have elements in my soul from the Middle East I am a European by birth, the values that I share. Over the years, I became a Londoner, a British citizen, and I feel very attached to this country where I found freedom, but equally, I think I would like to think of myself as a global soul. And despite what Teresa May has been telling us, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. That doesn't mean you're floating in the air aimlessly. It means you can care about multiple things simultaneously.
0: So what would you say to those who argue that there is a tension between people's desire, perhaps increasing desire for rootedness, for a solid identity, for a sense of place and of nation, a, a tension between that and mass migration?
1: I think patriotism is way too important to leave it to the nationalists. And um, I believe liberals, Democrats have for a long time ignored this. You know, it's important. It's important. So I make a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. I also make a distinction between faith or spirituality and religiosity. I think spirituality is way too important to leave it to the to the religious. So there are all these areas in which I think liberals need to do more thinking, uh, take another look. I... Find nationalism dangerous. I am critical of nationalist ideologies, and sometimes friends in different parts of the world they tell me, Well, our nationalism is not like someone else's nationalism because our nationalism is nice nationalism, gentle nationalism. But those of us who come, particularly have experienced what has happened in Anatolia, in the Middle East, in the Balkans, especially, I think we know that. That for a nice nationalism to turn into an ugly nationalism, you only need one political crisis, you only need one financial crisis, and then things can become ugly if the ideology is founded on a distinction between us versus them. So patriotism is something very different than nationalism, but I think we need to be careful with nationalism, because once it's unleashed, you cannot control it so easily.
0: But if we were to leave nationalism to one side, if we were to park ideology, purely in terms of what can work the pragmatics the the functionality of migration you you are in self-imposed exile here in London my grandparents were Jewish refugees from Hitler but how do we decide as countries where to draw the line who to say yes to and who with regret even to say no to
1: yeah I think As human beings, maybe we need to go back to the basics and remember that we are multiple things. That's the beauty of it. That's the complexity of being a a human. So my worry is extremist ideologies on all sides are telling us you can only be one thing, that you have your main identity, stick to your tribe, stick to your flock and stay within that monolithic identity. That's an illusion. When you think about it, um maybe you know being jewish is very important at the same time being british is a very important part of your of your life maybe i'm not saying it's at equal weight but the the team you support or the the city you grew up in we have many many other attachments the color
0: hair i have the,
1: the, the exactly the, the ginger hair and Shh, all don't of that Don't tell anyone <laughs> <laughs> but they're all part of us and who decides which one of those identities is the primary identity? We need to be careful about that. If I may put it differently, um, there was a time when I lived in Boston. Then I went to Ann Arbor as a visiting scholar and then I went to Tucson, Arizona. So I spent some time in America. This was after 9-11 and it was very interesting for me to see different sides of America, but particularly when I was in Boston. I would just lock myself in a little room in a, in, in the, this huge massive library in Mount Holyoke and just read the particularly African American women's movements of 1970s, and that to me was a, an amazing experience because when you read their words. It is fascinating how much emphasis they put on multiplicity, on pluralism. Many of these women, because they were women of color, they knew how racism worked. They were on the receiving end of racism. Because they were women, they knew how sexism worked. Because many of them were LGBTQ, they knew how homophobia or transphobia worked. And equally, because many of them came from disempowered, disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, they were not born into wealthy families. They knew how inequality worked in a society. So when they talk about identity, these progressive minded women, they would talk about identity in a much more pluralistic way than we do today. When you read someone like Audre Lorde, for instance, she says, look at me, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm a poet, I'm a mother, I'm lesbian, I'm this, I'm that, I'm many more things you might not be able to see at first glance. So in a way, like in Walt Whitman's poem, they're saying, I contain multitudes. I think this is what we forgot today. We forgot to say I contain multitudes, but it is our reality. If I can remember that I contain multitudes and Matt contains multitudes, you know there's a bigger chance that we can find a common ground as opposed to you being just one single identity, me being a single identity, then clash is inevitable.
0: So what is it actually like being a leaf Shafak? Because you, you do embody not just duality, but plurality. The way that you were brought up, partly in the West, partly in the East. You were born in Strasbourg, but you spent many of your childhood years in Turkey. You had a sort of mystical upbringing at the same time as an academic upbringing. You are still, as you've said, a, a citizen of so many different places. You're a mother and a wife. You're also... A writer and a thinker and a public figure. You've described yourself as bisexual, so there are so many ways in which you incorporate difference. What's it actually like being you?
1: <laughs> That's a tough question. It's, um, y- y- you know, the reason why I hesitate because I think each and every one of us has multiple selves and multiple voices. The first in time us. you
0: have hesitated by the way it's the
1: first time I hesitated so so I don't think it's something that's unique to me that's how I see human beings and as a storyteller I also, see human beings when I write my stories. So in other words, rather than thinking of human beings as goodies and baddies, as clashing identities, maybe as writers, we always try to show the invisible. We want to make it a bit more visible. Maybe as a writer, I want to give a bit more voice to the voiceless. I've always been interested in people who have been pushed to the periphery, you know, marginalized, disempowered. I've been interested in power inequality and I think in that regard as a writer I'm always drawn to to minorities in that sense but whether we are here or there doesn't matter we all have multiple voices inside and I think I honestly think that's the beauty of being a human being so in other words coming back to your question being myself to me the way I see myself I'm a learner you know, I, I, th- I believe writers need to be two things primarily. Obviously, we need to be good readers. We just need to keep reading and reading. But also we need to be good listeners. Just listen what people are saying. And I try to listen to two things, what people are telling me, but also with what kind of energy, the choice of words. So in that regard, maybe I see myself as a learner, as a student of life.
0: I'm not going to ask you the trite and perhaps obvious question about how your own experiences have influenced your writing and also whether your writing is somehow cathartic. I mean, you can weave an answer to those questions into what I'm about to ask you, if you wish. But on a more personal note, you have experienced, I suppose, what many would describe as traumatic experiences. So you were put on trial in 2006 in Istanbul for your novel, The Bastard of Istanbul. You experienced postnatal depression that you've written about. You are in one sense displaced, although you're at home here in London. As I've already said, you're in self-imposed exile. These are incredibly difficult things, I imagine, to go through as a human being. And you have been through multiple experiences. So how do you manage that in in yourself?
1: You know, I honestly don't know how well I manage, I think... We fall down, um, and then we stand up, we keep walking, we have our scars, we have our wounds. So again, that's part of the part of the journey. I don't want to sound as if I am managing it very well every day. There are always ups and downs. And again, as a novelist, you experience that because whether it's your first novel or tenth novel doesn't matter. When you sit at your desk, there are days of doubt. There are days when you think, wow, you know, I I am doing great. I'm writing a wonderful story. But then the next day you fall down again. And that's, again, being being human. But if I may talk a little bit about the experience of um, being put on a trial for writing a novel, that was very, very surreal. And maybe it took me years to understand how surreal it was because we have an article in our constitution, Article 301 in Turkey, which protects Turkishness against insults. But nobody knows what that means. And this article has been used against scholars and journalists so many times. But for the first time, it was used against a work of fiction, a novel. So this is a novel, The Bastard of Istanbul, that talks about a Turkish family and an Armenian American family. And it talks about memory and amnesia. In Turkey, we have a very rich history, but at the same time, we're a society of collective amnesia. Many people genuinely do not know their own past and have no desire to, or curiosity about the past. And I think it's important, not in order to be stuck in the past, but memory is a responsibility. So this is a book that talks about Armenian genocide. Um, and when the novel came out, I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. There were groups on the streets like ultranationalist groups spitting up my pictures, burning EU flags. I never forget that because in their eyes, if you question official history, then you must be a pawn of Western powers. so that's what they associate with eu It's fascinating to see how nationalism you know creates its own illusions. So that went on for about a year, and, and that was quite unnerving. It was also surreal in the sense that because the words of fictional characters were taken out of the book and used as evidence in the courtroom, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. So after a year, we which were all... Which is utterly surreal. Which is utterly surreal. You know, we were all acquitted, me and the fictional characters. But these things happen in Turkey. I indeed, mean,
0: your more recent work is, is being challenged by Turkish authorities, am I right?
1: Yeah, this time for um, the crime of obscenities, you know, quote-unquote, because they don't want fiction writers to write about issues like sexual harassment, child abuse, child brides, um, which are all the realities of my motherland, not only Turkey, across the world. I think it's very important that we write, we tell the stories. Again, to me, one of the biggest tragedies or ironies of this recent um, investigation is that this is happening in a country where we have a huge problem when it comes to gender inequality and violence against women. Violence against women in Turkey in 10 years increased by 1,400 percent. And today almost one out of every three marriages involves an underage girl. Also, with 4 million Syrian refugees, the number of child brides increased. We have urgent problems to address. The laws need to be changed. There needs to be more shelters for abused women and children. But instead of doing all that, the fact that they are prosecuting or investigating fiction writers who write about these issues is just, again, very surreal. But you've it happens.
0: Described being. An author, a female author in Turkey is, I think, being kissed on one cheek and slapped on the other.
1: Yes, because, um, and the reason why I say that is because readers are amazing. And I think when I speak with Indian authors coming from India, from Pakistan, from uh, Bangladesh, different parts of the world, I think they have a similar experience as well. Because in Turkey, a book is not a personal item. If a reader likes a book, she or he gives it to her friend, You know, and the friend sends it to her aunt in Germany, and that book ends up in you know another neighbor's hand. So
0: not so good for your royalties.
1: Yes, but what is good is um, and, and and what is very heartwarming is a single copy is usually read by five to six people on average, and so when people bring me copies on book signings, I realize different sentences have been underlined by different colored pens because different people have read it. That is beautiful. That kind of sharing, word of mouth, and I think it it. In a way, if books are alive today, to a large extent, we owe that to our readers. So that's the beautiful side. But the dark side, of course, is in a country where there is no freedom of speech. Whatever you write, you might end up offending some authority, you know, whether it's politics or sexuality. And I really want to underline this because, of course, writing about political taboos is hard in a country where there is no democracy. But I equally think writing about gender, sexuality can be um, very challenging too.
0: Makes me want to ask you this, that given your experience of Turkey is so negative when it comes to freedom of speech, where do you stand on the issue of no platforming here in the United Kingdom?
1: Yes, this is an issue that comes up when I give talks, when I, I go to universities I stayed in academia for many years, actually, and I love universities, you know, I love um, listening to students, that kind of interaction. And this is an area where sometimes we have disagreements. I'm not someone who supports no platforming. I find it dangerous, actually. And I think we need to be able to hear different opinions. We need to intellectually and spiritually engage with differences of opinion that is good for our growth. You know, Rumi has this beautiful saying. He says, if you are irritated by every rub, every, every word, how is your mirror going to be polished? You know, how is your soul going to grow? And I think there's truth in that. However, there's one line for me, red line, and that is the kind of hate speech that incites violence that's something else and i honestly and the think, law steps
0: in there anyway yeah, yeah
1: and the law steps in there anyway we don't need that, those kinds of speakers you know people who target minorities individuals and try to create violence direct violence that is something completely different but other than that we need freedom of speech. All of us do. You know, we can disagree, but we need to learn, all of us, to be maybe less easily offended and, and calmer when it comes to public discussions.
0: Just tell me how you feel you are responded to here in Britain as an author. And does it ever frustrate you that you can sometimes or often be described as a Turkish author?
1: Yes, more and more they're describing me as Turkish-British author, which is the truth. At the same time, I think as a storyteller, you want to be only described as a storyteller, right? Because even women writers can, after a certain point, sound unnecessary. Um, I understand. But what I, what I experience is, and what I like is just doing events and talking to people, book festivals. To me, it's very interesting in this country and also across Europe... What I have noticed is book festivals are in a way becoming a bit more political. You know, we get more and more political questions about the world, about the future of Europe, about um, things that maybe people weren't talking about might just 10 years be when ago. people
0: come to listen to you, Alif, because they know that you have views on these things.
1: That could be the case, but I'm also observing that there are more panels that have political titles. I'm not necessarily the speaker at those panels. So something more interesting is going on. People and it's not a coincidence. So it comes back to the anxiety that we were referring to at the beginning. I think people have lots of questions. And maybe it, this is there's a bright side to it in the sense that maybe this is a this is a moment when we can all become more engaged citizens, and I believe we must become more engaged. So you I don't, don't
0: feel you have the luxury, do you, coming from your background to stay silent? No, either as an author or as someone who is a public figure and has a platform.
1: Yeah, I I honestly think if you happen to be a storyteller from a wounded democracy, such as Turkey or Venezuela, Brazil, Egypt, you know, imagine Philippines, Russia, the list is so long, Hungary, Poland, um, and that list is getting longer. You don't have the luxury of being apolitical. You can't say, you know, I only want to talk about my novel. I don't want to talk about what's happening outside the window. Also, I am a feminist And one of the many wonderful things that I have learned from feminist movements of past generations is politics is not only about political parties or what's happening in the parliament today, it's beyond that. Politics is also about power, power inequality, our voices and our silences. So in that regard, the personal is also political. Again, when you describe politics in such a broad way, you can't be apolitical. But all I'm saying is I think more and more Western authors are beginning to feel that kind of urgency to talk about the fundamentals of politics. But if I may add this, I'm not talking about partisan politics, which I don't like. I'm not even talking about party politics. All I'm saying is when it comes to issues like freedom of speech, rule of law, checks and balances, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. You know, when it comes to issues like human rights, we cannot be silent. It's the core values that I believe we need to be more engaged in.
0: Which isn't to say that you like writing when it is didactic. No, no. You, you don't want the author to tell us no. what to think. I just want to finish by talking a little bit about your, your writing, because that's what you're most famous for, of course, you you write, write in Turkish or you've written in Turkish, but you write in English. I've read you saying that you do a huge amount of reading before you start a novel. And then once you actually start the writing, you turn to poetry. You read poetry rather than other novels. Just in synthesis, take us through very briefly then how you go about producing the work that you do.
1: I think one of the reasons why I love the novel as a genre so much because there's so much room there in that large canvas for plurality, for multiplicity. It is a democratic space. And in that sense, the writer does not control that democratic space. Really, I experience this all the time. Sometimes you want to keep a character on the side, and I realize she's becoming more important. Or you want to lead the story in a different direction, but the story has its own pace, has its own flow, and you need to respect that. So all I'm saying is you're not in charge And I don't like it when writers try to be didactic or teach something. I think a writer's job is to ask questions, sometimes difficult questions about difficult issues and open up spaces where a multiplicity of opinions can be heard, but it's not my job to Try to find the answers and and definitely not to try to give the answers because I don't know them myself. I'm still thinking, I'm still searching. And I also know that every reader is going to come up with their own answers. And I have to respect that. The beauty of the novel is... You know, a couple who has been married for 40 years, they might read the same novel, they wouldn't read it in the same way. Two very close friends might be reading the same story, they wouldn't read it in the same way. The same way.
0: person might reread a an novel exactly. and read it differently. Exactly.
1: Why? Because we bring our own gaze, our own chemistry, ourselves into the story. And so each reading is unique. And in that regard, it can never be didactic and it should never be. Coming back to language, I think language has always been my my passion um obviously you can hear my mispronunciation you know the, the the words that i can never quite get right i'm an immigrant in this language you know and as every immigrant knows there's a gap between the mind and the tongue you always want to say more but end up saying a bit less and sometimes that gap is frustrating but i think it could equally be inspiring because it it pushes you to pay more attention to those words that can't be translated easily from one language to another. So my point is, to me, English, yes, it is an acquired language. I started learning at the age of 10. I was in Spain at the time. Spanish was my second language. Turkish is my mother tongue. But English never abandoned me. And I felt freedom. I found freedom in this language, which is very important to me. That said, I also feel attached to the Turkish language. You
0: feel less inhibited than in English?
1: I feel less inhibited. Culturally, maybe politically, I feel less inhibited. But this is not an either or choice for me. And that's the thing that nationalists do not get because they think you can only be here or there, one thing or another. Whereas I think we can be bilingual, multilingual, if we can dream in more than one language. And actually, we do because our brains do not recognize those national. ...boundaries when we are sleeping... ...sometimes it happens to me... ...I start started dream in Turkish... ...and I end ended in English... ...I think we can then write fiction... ...in more than one language as well... ...overall what I can tell you... ...I think when my writing... ...has more melancholy in it... ...or sorrow or sadness or longing... ...I find these things much easier... ...to express in Turkish... ...but when it comes to humour... ...which is so crucial for me... ...it's the oxygen I breathe... ...when it comes to humour irony and particularly satire I find it much easier in English. And sex? Sex I I would say much easier to write in English.
0: You have so many messages for the world that are worth listening to including that we should read more female authors. Yes. But you also sometimes I think are able to take messages from your own characters Mm -hmm. and I read recently one such message you thought that we should be able to know thyself but you you took this one step further. What did you say?
1: <laughs> you should know thyself, but also you should know an asshole when you see one, because <laughs> <laughs> it, it needs to go hand in hand, you know, the knowledge of self, but the knowledge of people who are not good for you, toxic for you, just stay away from them.
0: Alif Shafak, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you so much. This
2: week's show starred Elif Shafak and was hosted by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. And the editor was John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. Next week, I'm in conversation with the prophet of our digital age, William Gibson. Thanks for listening.